Breath by Gerald Isner. Read by Mia Ellis. Mildred Fairchild was convinced that bad breath caused cancer. Surrounded by bad breath, she measured the seasons on a calendar of private theories and moved west to teach at the government school on the White Earth Reservation in Minnesota. Inhale the sunrise, she told her sisters. Pure breath is the path to a clean mind and body. Her buttons were too tight, but she never raved in the dark. Mildred inhaled the sunrise and hummed near water. Twice a week, she trimmed her nails on the back porch. She was clean and worried about her appearance, but she never searched her smile in a mirror until she moved to the reservation. Mildred was 15 when her mother died, the sudden victim of bad breath. She hummed at the river. Later, over the grave, she promised to serve the survivors. Her father, a miserable politician who practiced admiralty law with a morbid fear of the sea, twin sisters who turned to a secret language, and an elder brother who mourned for six months, and then he disappeared. Mildred cooked, washed, gardened, attended to her sisters, searched for her brother, and studied to be a teacher. In that order, from sunrise to the back porch at dusk, she was clean. Three years later, she smelled cancer on the breath of her chosen professor, the poet, with psoriasis. Late that summer, she bought a rail ticket west to the wilds of the reservation. Christians must not solicit praise for their simple missions, she told her father and sisters at the depot. Hence, my promise to serve tribal children, while a proper sacrifice must be held a secret. Dread, come back when you must. No one will know where you were, one sister said in a loud voice. We know how to keep secrets. Catholic priests are not to be trusted, warned her father in a cloud of cigar smoke. You know how we feel about them. Father, no need for that now. Beware of the savages, he complained. Indians, father, not savages, said Mildred. She was eager for the train to depart. Take care of your feet and remember not to eat too much pork. No Catholics. Yes, father. Dread, promise me, he insisted. Yes, father. No savages. No, father. Dread, you could still teach here at the country school, said her other sister as the train lurched backward and then forward a few feet. Remember me. Send us picture postcards with the wilderness. No, Catholics, promise me that. Yes, Father. Dread, do you hear me? Yes, Father. Mildred waved from the open window as the train started and stopped several times at the station. No one could turn back at the right moment. Last waves were repeated, hesitant, lost gestures. Back in the spring of 1886, there sure was plenty of good excitement out here when them Bolus published the first newspaper on the reservation. White Earth never has been the same. Theodore, he had a cousin with the same name in August. They tried all kinds of things from selling sewing machines to newspapers. Sewing was not a serious problem but words. 
little words with white around them, attracted the evils of the government. Reservation Indians weren't supposed to know anything about words, so it was the mixed bloods that caused all the trouble the way the agents saw it. Government agents could cheat the full bloods with words, but not the mixed bloods. And who were these mongrels who started a newspaper without permission? Printed words attracted the broken crows, and not far behind them was the old Indian agent, T.P. Milcho. His real name was T.J. Sheehan, but we called him T.P. for the shape of his head, and Milcho, well, I'm not really sure where he got that name, but we know what it means. Someone evil, I think. Someone who gave an Irish saint some trouble and a good name. The Bolus called their little paper the progress, dedicated, they wrote, to a higher civilization. Now, can you imagine that bit of idealism in the middle of a federal trust reservation with an Indian agent strutting around like some sort of colonial monarch? Well, the Bolus took after old Teepee with a vengeance. This was one headline on the front page. Is it an Indian bureau? about some of the freaks in the employ of the Indian service whose actions are a disgrace to the nation and a curse to the cause of justice, putrescent through the spoils system. You must understand that the Bolus weren't writing for us on the reservation. We knew that and more. They were throwing those words like putrescent around for God-fearing people living back east, back where teepee comes from, some say. Anyway. The agent choked on those words, so we knew what they meant. T.P. Milcho was at the door, and he said those were fighting words. More than that, he put the newspaper out of business. He took the printing press in the name of the government, made a few drunks into deputies, and then he ordered the Bolus out of town, even before sundown. We sat on the porch of the hindquarters hotel and laughed at the deputies trying to move an old printing press. They gave up, ink on their hands and clothes, marked by the government forever. Listen, if you knew the Bolus as well as we did at the hindquarters hotel that day, you would know that no one tells that family to leave the reservation. No one, not even the government. They weren't mean or anything like that, but they were part of a big and important mixed-blood family, the first to settle on the reservation, and they were Catholics. Teepee arrived at high noon at the big white Bolu house near the Mission Pond with half a dozen deputies hanging behind in the trees. Dummy Funday and his cousin Birch were up front with the agent. They both wore giant silver stars on their vests, the kind we saw in cartoons. The stars didn't change them much, though. They still stumbled and stammered, always wanting to be in charge of something or another. Birch was white. He married a skin. They were both pretty good boys, but they sure do hate Catholics, especially half-breed Catholics. Teepee put together a pack of Catholic-hating deputies to run the Bolus out, but not one of them, not even the agent, had the courage in the end. They came up the dirt path and stood for a long time below the porch stairs. The longer they waited, the more people gathered on the road waiting for the action. Catholics were the real enemies, but nothing happened.
T.P. started up the stairs of the Beaulieu place when someone in the crowd yelled, Hey, watch out for the fifth step. So he stopped and looked around. He did look stupid with his pointed head and six-gun at his side playing the Western hero, but he was really the loser, not a twig of humor in his bones. The board is loose. We all laughed. T.P. thought the whole thing was a joke. And we knew he would, so he threw both feet on the fifth step and fell on his ass down the stairs. He caught a sliver on his right thumb, drew some blood. We laughed again because it was his shooting hand and we called out to him, T.P., watch out, those Catholics learn how to fast draw at confessions. Colonel Clement Cudon D. Beaulieu, the elder of the mixed-blood families, was at the door to meet the agent. He was no stranger, but even so, T.P. yelled his orders out. You Beaulieu's leave this reservation by order of the United States and the Honorable Secretary of the Interior. He had the government behind him, and he was still scared. His voice wagged like a mongrel at a picnic. We never did hear what Colonel Clement said back to him through the screen door. The old man wore a black morning coat. Sometimes visitors took him for the priest. He had a real quiet voice. He was educated, and so were his boys. They all went to private schools out east somewhere. He was in the fur trade for a time before the reservation was created. That's when the governor of the state made him a colonel. But soon, the fur was gone and the Indians were removed. He and his boys did the best they could as educated mixed bloods on the reservation. They went into business. What else? And now they started a newspaper. The old man still tells a good story. He even plays a good poker hand. And he has a way with bears and horses. He drinks with the priests. T.P. kicked his heels at the door, looked down and around to see who was watching. We were sitting on the porch of the hindquarters, so once more he ordered the Bolus to leave. Birch said later that Colonel Clement invited him over to the church and that scared him more than a shotgun aimed at his head. That's just what the Bolus did. They went over to the church and Father Corner, that weird old man with a hatchet face, held a special service. The next thing you know, there was a United States Senate subcommittee hearing about corruption at White Earth. Listen, that was a long time ago, back in the good old days when words still had some power and people sat around and laughed over a good story. We laughed over that story many an afternoon, sitting on the porch of the hindquarters hotel. Father Corner talked about the devil and Colonel Clement went all the way to Washington to testify. T.P. Milcho never came back once the word was out. No one was surprised, because he never should have been here in the first place. T.P. never laughed. Everything was too serious to him. He even reported the doctor for dancing in the hospital and said that all the jerking around would weaken the foundation of the building. Dancing. Now there's a way to destroy government property. T.P., never came back from the hearing and the Bolus went back to publishing their newspaper, maintaining, as they said, our higher civilization on the reservation. Like I said, Colonel Clement had a way with bears and horses and priests. 
Father Lawrence watched the sun crawl over the mount named for St. Columban, and then he plunged his narrow head deep into cool water and thumped his fingers on the rim of the wooden rain barrel. There, in that manner each morning, he balanced his otherwise uncertain spiritual worlds underwater. He confessed that the resound, like the distant thunder in tribal creation stories, stopped sacramental time. He descended into a Pacific sea. Sister James, a conservative throwback to the old school of pure and simple sacrifices, complained to Father Corner, whose flesh was corrupt enough to retain a thin beam of humor, that Father Lawrence was possessed, that he had been touched by savages and evil shamans. She reported that the young priest, new to the reservation, his first appointment to clear his unsettled mind, chanted on the mount at night, talked to insects, and inhaled rainwater from a barrel at first light. Father Corner, the wicked ones like him too much. They ask him several times a day, how was your plunge this morning, Father? And he says back, just fine, thank you for asking. And he even smokes bark with those pagans at the hotel. She confessed to her superior, and then she explained that she had passed these rumors to others, and she even told unkind stories about the new priest to the sisters at the mission school. Sister James had enormous feet, long and narrow, so narrow that she ordered her shoes from a custom cobbler who supplied circus clowns. She looked down at her shoes in the confessional and noticed a thin crack in the leather. She tapped the toes together. Sister, this is your confession, not his, said Father Corner. He was harsh at confessionals. He pinched his eyes closed and pictured the young priest on the loose. Please, please continue the stories. She never failed to please the old priest with her wild and paranoid imagination. His curiosity and absolution each week was implicit. Father Lawrence calls me Big Jim. So what? You confessed that last week, said Father Corner. He ridicules me. Father Lawrence was not certain how to answer the letter from Mildred Fairchild. She explained her situation. The Bureau of Indian Affairs had hired her to teach at the White Earth Government School, but no one in the main office could provide her with information about tribal children or the reservation. He wrote a note. Big Jim, please answer. No, she wrote back. You be the expert. Dear Sister James, he addressed a second note. Please. Would you kindly answer the attached letter from Mildred Fairchild? No, she answered a second time. Must we point out that Miss Fairchild is a federal teacher and we are a mission school? Thanks again, Big Jim. Praying mantis have four thin legs. Father Lawrence told Little Baron, son of Dummy Funday and his little friend with no name, the two had been lurking all week in the woods behind his small house behind the mission school. The tribal boys sought the attention of the new priest as an excuse to avoid their classroom teachers in the government school.
Now, during the summer, Little Baron and his friend waited to time the priest in the rain barrel. The gamblers in the village started a secret cash raffle on how long the priest could keep his head underwater. Colonel Clement Beaulieu loaned the boys his gold watch, the best one on the reservation, to keep the average time for seven plunges in the barrel. The fifth plunge was short, but the first four ran between three and four minutes. Colonel Clement believed that the new priest possessed unusual spiritual energies, so he bought each third second between three and four minutes. Emar Funday and his son Dummy bought the other marks on the clock, but for different reasons. Emar, who hates Catholics, was convinced that beneath the black robe of the priest there beat the black heart of an evil shaman. Others in the village, with much less cash on hand to risk, measured what the priest could do as a mortal white man. Not much, said a woodcutter. He lost. Now, watch the neck. See there? See how it moves over the shoulder? Said the priest as he touched the green back with a twig. The boys leaned on their elbows, close to the earth. To hear the lecture, the priest turned his head with the mantis. His face was round and tender, a hint of green from the trees. A scar creased his right cheek at the same level as his mouth. When he was twelve, he chased a fawn across a field and caught his cheek on a barbed wire fence. Mantis eat insects, and sometimes the female eats the male for dinner. What do you make of that? I like dogs better, said the little boy. How long can you hold your head under water? asked little Baron. A mixed blood with pale green eyes. He leaped to his feet, excited, and waited for an answer. A gray mongrel barked. Why do you ask? We saw you in the barrel, said the little boy. Never thought about the time. We gotta watch, said Little Baron. Where did you get that? asked the priest. Colonel Clement gave it to us. Really? We didn't steal it, we didn't, pleaded Little Baron. Well, I suppose you better time me with it then, said the priest. He brushed his black hair behind his ears and leaned close to the water. The boys waved their arms to mark the time, and the priest plunged his head into the rain barrel. One, two, three, four. One minute, thirty-eight seconds for the sixth plunge beneath the water. You did better the last time. Never thought about it until now. Can we time you tomorrow? Don't tell me about it, said the priest, and then he plunged his head into the barrel once more. The water was cool. He could hear animals at a distance, and then he pictured the new teacher at the window of the train. No, we won't, said little Baron. Dear Miss Fairchild, the priest thought to write with his head deep in the rain barrel. Please forgive this tardy reply to your letter. Where should we begin to introduce you to the unusual people of this reservation? At the beginning, 
But then where is the beginning of this tribal place? In 1863, the Indian office submitted a plan to unite the scattered tribes. He continued to write at his desk. Through three narrow windows, he watched the poplar and the oak leaves shiver in the warm breeze on the mount at St. Columban. White Earth was established by treaty in 1867, and on June 14, 1868, the first Indians, most of them were mixed bloods, began to arrive at White Earth from Malax Pillager. The Bolus and the Morrisons, two prominent fur trade families from Old Crow Wing, were the first to be removed to the new reservation. White Earth was a beautiful forest then, quiet and clean beneath the tall red and white pines. It was a good place for the first settlers. The Indian knew himself better in those days than he does today and he had the pride of being on his own good land until the enactment of the Dawes Allotment Act of 1886, which led to the illusion of individual ownership of the land. The trees were cut to build cities and a few men became wealthy and in their guilt built monuments in their name at a great distance from the stumps they left behind on the reservation. Now we measure who we are from what we have done to them. White Earth Village, which is where you will teach, was subdivided into small blocks and home sites. Some roads were paved, a water tower was erected, and there were even plans for a sewer system which was never completed. But things are much different now. This, of course, does not tell you much about the people who live here now. Well, let me tell you two stories, which is the way most Indians explain their time to a visitor. The first is about two Indian boys, they could be in your class next year, who came by to see me this afternoon. Rather, they were lurking in the trees behind the house. God knows why, but they have taken an interest in one of my peculiar practices. In the morning, I rinse my face outside in a rain barrel. The water is so soft. Well, the boys are up to something because... They have been timing how long I keep my head under water. Little Baron, the mixed-blood grandson of the shaman Imar Funde, is quick and full of wit. And he reminds me of the tribal trickster we hear so much about here on the reservation. Nana Bojo is his name, or her name, a sort of cultural hero who creates and contradicts classes, manners, and political authority. There are many tales of his growing and learning. His grandmother told him that when Indians first ate the meat of animals, the trees and plants got together and decided to punish people with diseases. The plants and trees, however, decided that the Indians had not been unkind to them. So they agreed to offer humans the secrets of herbal medicines to cure diseases given to them by animals. A rational balance but the trickster upsets the balance, if for no other reason, to keep people alert to their own survival and powers to heal. The mixed bloods are the tricksters. They settle new worlds in their own blood. The second story is about St. Columban, a sacred place on the earth which I can see at this moment through the window. We call it the Mount, a meadow near the pond, 
and it is marked by four poles which have been carved down to stubs in the past few years. Tribal people come from all over the state to touch the earth at St. Columban and to cut sacred slivers from one of the posts. The slivers and the earth there, some believe, will cure cancer. St. Columban and most of this reservation is unlike any place I have ever known or dreamed about before. It is truly a sacred place on the earth. It is a place where some are touched by visions and where religions begin and some end. White earth, on the other hand, cannot be introduced. This place must be a collection of every changing trickster story, and the longer I am here, the more we seem to change each time a story is told. White earth might be one of those transitional places on the earth where the past is never the same in the memories of the people who lived here. This reservation is a story. Father Lawrence imitated the water strider. He touched his hands and moved on the surface. He could feel the tension there, but he was not small enough to walk across the rain in the barrel. He leaned over and rolled the reflection of his face from side to side with his hands, and then he plunged his head up to his naked shoulders. He listened to the distance in the cool rainwater, his meditation at first light. Little Baron, tucked behind a tree with a gold watch, timed the priest at three minutes, 42 seconds. Imar Funde, his wicked grandfather, was the winner. But when others in the village learned that his grandson had been the official timekeeper, they withdrew their money from the raffle. Colonel Clement Beaulieu paid the mixed blood, made good on his bet as always, and then he drove to meet the new school teacher. Perched high in the seat of his plain black motor car, he confessed his basic needs to the priest. Basic needs? asked Father Lawrence. Education, women, priests, and red wine. No song? I had no idea the new teacher could sing, he said, and then burst into laughter. Colonel Clement looked around the fields. The slant of morning light raised the corn. He waited for the priest to ask the most obvious question. How many basic needs do you have? Seventeen, at last count, he said. What might one or two be? asked the priest. Not until you tell me how you can hold your breath for such a long time underwater in that rain barrel, he said, and leaned into a curve. The broken road from white earth curves near the mission pond, circles the mount, and then unfurls like a ribbon snake between the corn and alfalfa fields. Ogama is a white town on the border of the reservation, the nearest railroad depot, a place where the plains begin and alcohol is dispensed at a high price. Mildred Fairchild stood beneath a pale blue parasol at the entrance to the Paradise Bank and Trust Company of Ogama. The church was hidden behind the public school, not obvious to a visitor. Mildred waited near the pillars of the bank. Between her valise and a small trunk, she was tired, 
but she stood erect with her small feet close together on the broken concrete. Her blonde hair was bound in a loose bun low at the back of her neck. She watched the street, alert to the gestures of others. She did not know that there was more behind those mock pillars than a bank. Miss Fairchild, I presume, said Colonel Clement. Your name, sir? Your chauffeur, he said and smiled. Your name, sir? Colonel Clement Hudon de Beaulieu. At your service. Do you live on the White Earth Reservation? She asked, and then folded her parasol. The blue cloth was faded and clean. She was nervous, insecure, and she avoided the priest. Indeed, since the night it was invented. What do you do there? Twice retired, he said as he reached for the small trunk. Twice? Fur trader one and farmer twice. My father is a lawyer, she said. So he is, said Colonel Clement as he walked to the car. Perhaps you would not mind waiting here for a few minutes with Father Lawrence while I conduct some business at the bank? Not at all, Colonel. She settled in the middle of the back seat. Here is my response to your letter, said Father Lawrence. He was standing outside the car and handed the unsealed envelope to her through the window in the back door. But I never wrote to you. Mildred hesitated and did not open the letter. She placed it beside her on the leather seat. Your letter was forwarded to me because the other teachers have left for the summer, he said through the window. She looked past him when he spoke. Forgive me. For what? She snapped. Forgive me for not writing to you sooner about what to expect here, he said in a slow and awkward speech. When I finally took up my pen to answer, well, I noticed that you would be here before the letter could be delivered. Thank you. Did you notice the bank? Well, of course. What I mean to say is, did you notice that the bank is more than what meets the eye? The priest rested his bare arm on the window. The black metal was hot in the sun. Not really. She turned toward the entrance to the bank. Her face came too close to his arm on the window, too close to the thin black hair that spread down to his fingers. She pinched her lips and moved back from the window. The bank is in the front, as you can see, but behind that is a liquor bar, he explained in a louder voice, and behind the bar is a land trust company. My father would call that a Western. Western indeed, said the priest. He pushed his head through the open window. They bank on one end, grab land, Indian land, and valuable timber on the other end and then drink and celebrate in the middle. What would they think of me, she said, and leaned forward on the leather seat, standing there at the door to the bar. There stands the new school teacher, he said. People seem to know just about everything around here. Not much gained with a pose. Katie Dids sounded in the trees. 
Mildred opened the back door and placed one foot on the running board. Colonel Boyu, would he be a banker or a drinker? She asked. Both, and he would agree. Father Lawrence, would you show me the bank? The bank? He took her hand and watched her move from the car. He opened the door to the bank, stood behind her, and imagined that he saw her small, bare feet move on the cool marble floor. Mildred followed a path worn in the marble from the vestibule to the bright white entrance and to the bar in the back. Two men watched from behind brass enclosures at the side of the bank. Where is the bar? she shouted. Through the back door. The priest pointed to a steel door that had been the entrance to the vault. The door handle, a wide copper wheel, had turned green. Not a comfortable place for a woman. What could be so bad about a bar, she said. Her shoes ticked on the marble, a determined measure. She never would have entered a bar at home, but this was a western on the border of civilization, and she was moved to experience deceptions. She towed the green wheel and walked into the bar ahead of the priest. The room was dark and smelled of mold and liquor, cigar smoke, and perspiration. Mildred pinched her nose at the masculine emanations, but it was the smell of bad breath that forced her against the wall. She gasped and retreated to the back seat of the car. Father Lawrence, meanwhile, heard his name mentioned when he entered the bar. He approached Colonel Clement, who stood at the end of the bar with several other men from town. The men talked about bankers and games, winners and lovers. St. Lawrence of the Rain Barrel, said one man. No saint could survive on this reservation. Much less around mixed bloods, said another man. Lawrence has been touched. Colonel Clement stopped in the middle of his sentence. Lawrence, I would like you to meet some of my friends. When the mixed blood turned, the four men at the bar had disappeared. Some people fear the best in a man. Mildred Fairchild. Father. Forgive me, she was lost in the stories, he said, and wrapped the opened bottle with several others in a small leather case. She was under the stories. Colonel, would the game you mentioned to your friends at the bar be of interest to me? The priest walked and talked to the bank entrance. Yes, it would indeed, said Colonel Clement. He covered his eyes from the bright light. We bet on how long you could keep your head under water in that rain barrel. Little Baron borrowed your watch to time me then. The average time for seven tries, he said, and handed the leather case to the priest near the car. Fun day one. But the game died because the others would not trust the timer. But he is an honest boy. Fun days are honest to the seeds, but few trust them. People fear the dark, said Father Lawrence. Miss Fairchild, forgive me, 
for we have sinned, said Colonel Clement. He started the engine, turned, smiled, and nodded toward the back seat. Priests and mixed bloods are ritualists, he construed with a flourish. We are the creatures folded in stories, better told, better remembered than morals and manners. Such ritual banking could be bad for your health, she said in a serious voice, but then she smiled and leaned back in the warm leather. She had removed her blue gloves. There you'll find a gentle argument, he said, and started the engine. He slipped his hands into large gloves to handle the hot wooden wheel. Father Lawrence? Yes. Did you retrieve the letter you gave to me? No, I thought you placed it on the seat. I am afraid the letter is missing, she said. Father, please see that her trunk is tied to the back. Colonel Clement turned and stopped the car. Some people borrow too much in this town. Trunk is here, said the priest. He looked in the back seat and under the seats. Miss Fairchild, I am afraid that someone has borrowed your valise. Colonel Clement reported the missing valise to the local constable and then, as best he could, assured the new teacher that the letter and her personal properties, nightdress and underwear, would soon be returned. Mildred listened to the wind and smelled the hot timothy, corn, and meadow flowers. For a few minutes, she was alone, for the first time in years, at peace in the back seat. Red-winged blackbirds cracked the air on both sides of the narrow road back to the white earth reservation. Mildred moved into a small private room attached to the back of the hindquarters hotel. The outside wall was stained and the fleur-de-lis border paper had fallen near the corner. She pulled the lace curtains back and opened the windows on both sides. There was a trace of mold in the room. She was tired. The breeze was warm and humid. She removed her shoes and stockings, loosened her dress, and leaned back on the hard bed. The linen was hard and clean. The pillow smelled fresh. She thought about her mother and burst into tears. Dread, come rest beside me now, her mother said in a dream. The linen was pure white and scented with clover. Mildred buried her head in the pillow and counted silhouettes until she was lost in sleep. Mildred smelled bread fresh from the oven. She was home with her mother at last, but then she awakened. The linen was coarse. The wallpaper was stained and paired. She was alone on the reservation with savages late in the afternoon. Two boys, one with cat-green eyes, stared at her from behind the window screen. One pressed his nose hard to the wire and crossed his fingers. Mildred screamed. She pulled a blanket over her bodice and then burst into tears a second time. There, there. Nothing to fear now, said the hotel cook and baker who heard the screams. The stout brown woman lowered the blanket and sowed until the teacher turned a smile, however thin. There, there, come with me now 
and we'll have some coffee and fresh bread. Thank you, Mildred said, and then she dressed. Her movements were slow, deliberate. She was ashamed to be alone and dependent on strangers, afraid that she would forget her name. She studied her face in the mirror. The irregular glass rolled her nose and cheeks flat. She tried to smile, but each gesture brought silent tears. She had never come so close to her face in a mirror. She had avoided such vanities at home. There, there. Nothing to worry about now. You'll be up in the new house with the other teacher in a week or so. As soon as she returns and they put in the water, she said with her hands on her wide hips. The room is fine, really. There, there. Never mind now, she said and held out her fat hand. Mildred, is that what your mother called you at home? Dread, for short. Well, we'll just call you by your whole name, she said, as they walked down the hall to the hotel kitchen. My name is Gracie Bobolink, but my friends call me Greasy because I'm the head cook here. Greasy? It's good to call me Greasy. She insisted with a wide smile. Two front teeth were broken. Before that name, they called me Boku Bobolink. Bobolink? Yes, my mother came down from Rat Portage with no name. And in those days, government agents gave us bird names. Greasy chirruped. Greasy? I'm pleased to know you, said Mildred. See there, you feel better now. Yes, I was dreaming about my mother. She died eight years ago, and when I woke up, I saw these two boys at the window. One of them had strange green eyes. That would be Little Baron. No trouble, said Greasy. Little Baron? Nicknames, tumble names. She started to explain tumble names and then looked out the kitchen window. Some people wear out their names and get new ones from time to time. Dread never wore out. Little Baron, come here, boy. Greasy called through the window. When she moved, the flesh under her arms waved like wattle. She held the back door open for the green-eyed boy. What you got there? Letter from Father Lawrence. Well, who did he write to now? asked Greasy. Letter for the teacher, he answered, and handed over the unsealed envelope. He turned his head, looked to the corners of the room, hid his eyes. Look up now. Greasy held her hand under his chin. Look up. Let's see those bright green eyes. She pinched his cheeks. Where's the smile in those eyes? Where did you get this letter? asked Mildred. My grandfather, he told me to bring it here. Who is your grandfather? Emar Funde. He's a big shaman, answered Greasy. I came to the window with the letter. Little Baron raised his head and looked at the teacher in the same way he watched her through the window screen earlier. Little Baron, will you be in my class at school? Mildred leaned over a few inches, closer to his answer. He nodded that he would. His green eyes flashed around the kitchen like a monger, stopped at the loaves of fresh bread. 
he touched his fingers to his mouth. Greasy gave him two thick slices of warm bread covered with lard and sugar, one in each hand. Little Baron nodded, and then he butted the door open with his head and ran out. Mildred sat at the kitchen table and read the letter. She sipped coffee but stopped when several flies paraded on the rim of the cracked cup. She waved the flies from the table, from her hair, from the letter. Greasy watched the white teacher read and wave. She swatted the flies around her with a folded newspaper. Mildred nodded her approval with each smack of the paper. When she finished the letter, she smiled and counted 17 dead flies on the bare table. Colonel Clement said someone would bring it back, Mildred told Greasy over supper. The valise was on the bed when she returned to her room that night. Funday returns things around here, whatever is lost or stolen, said Greasy with a mouthful of sweet peas. He's the shaman, and he knows where things get lost and what people think about. So watch what you think around him, or he'll say your mind back. Shaman, is that a witch doctor? You should ask the priest about that. My father told me to avoid Catholics. Mildred leaned on her elbows and waved her fork over the table. An unusual gesture. She heard an echo in her voice. She watched her gestures from the inside, the rituals from word to hand. The priests, be good to me. Greasy made the sign of the cross, and then she wiped her plate clean with a thick slice of white bread. Three fat black flies pursued her hand from plate to mouth and lost. Thunderbirds overturned the prairie, and late in her dreams that night, the bed trembled and the room blazed with lightning. Pillars of hail crossed the mission pond and hammered a barrel at the back of the hotel. The rain smelled of meadow flowers and twittered on the narrow wooden window sills. Lightning cracked at the tall white pine. Thunder chattered at the panes. Mildred lost her place in the world. The scenes beneath her hands burned. She told her mother to wait, whispered secret fears to her sisters, and then she called out her own name to be sure that she was there that night. Nothing returned. Her voice was lost in the thunder. The wild wind pulled at nests in the trees, turned signs around, tore shingles from the hotel. The ceiling in her room leaked over the bed and in three places near the windows. Drops of rain hit the brass headboard and splashed on her face, soft and cool. Mildred imagined animals on the oil lanterns. There were bears at the windows and an owl screamed from the bars at the end of her bed. A snake uncoiled and hissed from a corner near the ceiling. Her wet flesh tingled. Thunder trembled in her pillow. Mildred called out for Greasy, but her voice was lost. The room came alive and then died with the light. Nothing could be darker. Images danced on her hands, on the walls, at the window sills. Shamans were at the windows. Little Baron was a white cat in a flash of lightning. His green eyes blinked and splashed at the foot of her bed. She opened her mouth to scream, but there was no sound. Trees snapped on the hill behind the hotel. 
Emar Funday appeared at the other window as a black bear with his front paws on the sill. Lightning flashed from his maw and sharp teeth, and his roar rattled the lanterns and shook the bed. There, there, never mind now, you are good, said Greasy. She touched her hot cheeks in the dark. We get storms like this every few days in the late summer. Thunderbirds from the mountains, the weather of the shamans. Greasy, they were here. Who was here? Funday and Little Baron at the windows. They're there. Funday is a shaman. He has the time of the night to go where he wants to. He was at my window once. He even moves and dreams, she said in a calm voice between the low rumbles of distant thunder. Funday can scare the ears from a cornstalk, but he never hurt anybody. Sounds to me like he might have taken a liking to you. No, no, not me, pleaded Mildred. There, there. You'll just have to learn how to talk to a shaman at night, and then you won't be scared. Greasy rubbed her hands together. How do you talk to a shaman? The trick is not to see a shaman the way he comes out of the dark or in a dream, said Greasy. Suppose he was at the window there, right now. I'll bet he would want us to see him as a bear. Yes, he was a bear. Mildred seemed surprised. Well, there's one way to trick a shaman, she said, as she leaned back to the foot of the bed. Pretend that he's just a boy who showed his little brute at the dinner table. So you say to him, Funday? Listen here, put that little thing away before the butcher cuts it up for sausage. And that works because a shaman has sex on the brain. That's how he gets around in our dreams. So, if you cut his brood off, you cut the bear down to size. I've never thought like that before. You've never been on a reservation before either, said Greasy. The bed creaked when she laughed. Try the brute removal sometime. You'll see for yourself. But there were other animals. What kind? Crows, owls, cats, and a huge snake, she cried. There, there. You can talk to the priest tomorrow, said Greasy. She touched Mildred on the cheeks once more. Lightning flashed, but the storm had ended. Crows. Owls and cats are the shaman, but you brought the snake with you on the train. Mildred took a primrose to bed, and when the animals and birds appeared in her dreams later that night, she touched them once on the head. The five petals transformed them into clean white moths. She inhaled the sunrise with the pure moths. Funday appeared at the window once more, and when she touched him on the head, he lost his black hair. He shivered at the window screen. Little Baron waved into the room as a small bat, but he turned to a moth at the foot of the bed. Father Lawrence pressed his white hands and then his cheek to the small stained upper pane in the window. Mildred held the primrose high. She waited to touch the priest as she had the bear. Then, when the little priest 
danced through the window toward her bed. She swatted him several times on the shoulders with the primrose. The petals broke from the stem, and the more she swatted him, the more he grew until she could see at her side the dark hair on his wrists and fingers. Miss Fairchild, are you all right? Stay away, she screamed several times and beat the space around her bed with the wilted stem of the primrose. Brute, brute, be gone. This is Father Lawrence, he called. The boys are gone. What boys? Mildred was out of bed, behind the wardrobe near the door. She shivered, wrapped to her chin in a threadbare blanket. Brutes at the windows, brutes on the bed. Little Baron and the others, the priest said in a gentle voice. He searched for the lantern in the dark. Greasy Bobolink heard your screams and told me to look around outside. We wanted you to be comfortable. This, your first night on the reservation. Do you smell bad breath? What breath? Bad breath of death, she whispered. No, he said. Never mind now. Should I light the lantern? No, don't do that, she said from behind the wardrobe. Who was that at the windows? Who was the bear out there? Her voice was weak. Little Baron and his friends have a collection of animal masks, the priest said. They stood in the windows with different masks. Bears and crows? Yes, and other creatures. An owl? Yes, owls, hawks, crows, the birds. Snakes? That must be a new one. Who was the snake? Miss Fairchild, there is no place you could be more secure than on this reservation, he lectured. No one here will harm you. What has happened to you is what happens to all of us from time to time. We call it love burns from the tricksters. Funday, was he there at the window? No, he never wears masks, the priest said. He walks around in a blanket burnoose to hide the hideous scars from a burn on his cheek and neck. But he was there, she insisted. Miss Fairchild, would you like to walk with me around the village? He continued talking before she could answer. Her first answer would have been negative, but the more she listened, the better she felt about his invitation. This is the most beautiful time of the night. The thunderstorm has passed, silent lightning on the horizon. The air is clean and clear. The earth must have been like this at creation, at the first light. Thank you. The fresh air will do you good, he said, before she could change her mind. There is nothing to fear on the reservation, not even the shaman. Greasy lived in a corner room on the second floor of the hotel. From there, she could see the government school, the mission, the pond below the meadow, the hospital, and the sacred mount in the distance. She could see them down on the road. The moon was bright, and later she heard their voices from the mount. Mildred stopped beside the road and reached into her pocket. Father Lawrence, this is a silly thing, but I want you to see a picture of my father. I would be delighted, 
He turned the small photographs to the best light. She watched mosquitoes circle the moist clouds from his breath as he admired her father. My father hates Catholics, she said with her head down. He warned me. Does that trouble you, that so many people hate you? She looked at the picture of her father on the porch. Do you have an answer? Where are we going? There is a special place at the top of the hill, he said, and pointed to the mount behind a stand of white pine trees. She turned to swat several mosquitoes on her neck and then on her ankles. Whose house is that? Colonel Clement Beaulieu. The mosquitoes wait for my breath, she complained. There are no mosquitoes on the mount. He brushed his arms and neck. He heard animals in the distance. Lightning burned in the thunderclouds. One bit me on the forehead. Father Lawrence smiled and pointed to the mount. Mildred led the way on a narrow path through several bands of trees. First, the birch and poplar and then the white pine. The grass was moist. She shivered under the pine closer to the mount. Sleeves were wetted and her leather shoes were soaked. The wet cotton held to her breasts. The mount, a natural meadow in the white pine, was covered with sweet clover. Mildred turned in circles, her arms extended, and the moon bounced over the branches. She twirled like a child until she lost her balance and tumbled on her side into the clover. She rolled over on her back. This is the mount. The priest was possessed on the mount. When I was a child, my mother put clover in my pillow at night, she said, and touched the moon in the white pine. She told me that the blossoms would make my dreams sweeter. No bad breath in the clover. You could do that here. This is a beautiful place, she said, and turned over on her stomach, her chin in her hands. She had not noticed that the clover was warm, not wet. There was no rain on the mount. Nana Bojo, the trickster, was the first to imagine this mount, he said, and then sat down next to her in the clover. The missionaries were the first to take the credit. They named the mount after St. Columban. Never heard of either one, said Mildred. Neither had I until one night I came up here to watch a thunderstorm approach, said the priest. The lightning and rain circled the mount. I could feel the moisture in the air, of course, but not the rain. How can that be? Nanabojo, I was told, was transformed into four different animals and birds to protect his sick grandmother, who was stranded on the mount during a thunderstorm. The trickster was a bear over there, a crow over on that side of the mount, and an otter and waxwing on the other sides. The four sides of the trickster stopped the rain one night, and the thunderbirds never forgot what happened. That's fantastic, she said. The missionary said otherwise, said the priest. There are people who come up here to pick clover, find stones, or cut pieces of bark from the trees on the four sides of the mount. The stones and bark are spiritual medicine and heal. You wrote about that in your letter, she said. 
Do you believe those stories about the trickster, the stones, and the rest? Life begins with imagination. How did you get that scar on your cheek? I was a child when it happened, he said, and rolled back in the clover next to her. I was chasing a fawn, tripped and fell on a barbed wire fence. Nothing more. You smile on one side. Father Lawrence imagined that he turned to the side and touched her cool, moist shoulder, first with one finger and then with his whole hand. She moved closer and kissed the scar on his right cheek and then drew his head down on her low breasts. He listened to her heart beat and moved his hand across her warm stomach and down her thighs. She opened her legs to his hands. She touched his ear with her tongue and pulled the hair at the back of his neck, and then she squeezed the muscles down his back. She tore the cotton from her breasts, and he sucked on her nipples. He imagined how she moaned, writhed in the clover, and forced his hand down on her crotch. He reached inside her panties and pushed two fingers into her wet vagina with a sudden movement. She rolled from side to side on his hand. Then she opened his black trousers and touched his penis. He shot in the clover. Mildred imagined that the priest whispered his secrets to her on the mount. His breath was clean and sweet, and she could feel his smile in her loins. She wore no underwear. Her nipples were hard. He touched her ears with his tongue, loosened her hair, and then he rose above her in the light of the moon and made love with her until the doves whistled at dawn. She carried clover blossoms home to her father. Greasy listened to the voices of the priest and teacher late at the mount and remembered the time when she was seventeen when Imar Funday caught her on the road one dark night and lured her to the mount where he practiced what he called animal love with a shaman. She removed her pink bloomers and roamed over the clover on her hands and knees while he circled the mount and leaped from behind trees and mounted her as an animal might. She remembers best the bear. She conceived a child that night with the bear and from the night with the otter, too but she never forgot the wild mountain goat. Remember the beaver with his sharp teeth at the back of her neck. She would be a bear and roam at night on the mount, under the whole moon. She would flash her silver maw and hold the priest in the clover until first light. You're listening to Fiction Transmission, a project of Fiction Collective 2. Every week, we bring you a story and a conversation. You just heard Bad Breath by Gerald Visner from the anthology An Illuminated History of the Future, edited by Curtis White and published by FC2 in 1989. Next, Gerald is joined by Native American poet and activist Kimberly Blazer for a conversation across the cosmic distance of isolation.
today reread <laughs> out oh. of my very well-thumbed um, book, Bad Breath. And I thought it was interesting partly to see my old marginalia. You know, oh, yes. that was, yeah. And then I thought about it as kind of like related to the re-reading, the rereading is related to the retelling that is part of what you're doing in that story. You know, I also just finished writing about Bear Island, the war at Sugar oh, really? Point as oh. documentary poetry. Yeah. So again, you know, it's all this creative writing about history and sort of the reimagining like a more layered truth. And so I thought we could start, if you don't mind, talking about um, historical characters in creative stories. Oh, yes. Uh, actually, I think most of my writing has been that way, except haiku or something like that. But, um, and I'm very pleased that the idea, the, the academic idea of historical fiction has expanded more thoughtfully to include uh, people like us who have limited access to history because it's been denied or rewritten. So we have a disadvantage in um, historical writing and have to fill in things uh, by imagination because the government has either fraudulently rewritten or lost or removed or, or manufactured uh, our history. Uh, luckily for us, William Warren wrote, uh, you know, the Ojibwe Nation. So we have a pretty solid early kind of history of natives in Minnesota and especially White Earth Reservation. But that has always been a problem with White Earth. You have some of the basic treaty documents and the rest of it has to come largely from either newspapers and luckily White Earth had two newspapers or from other surrounding papers and then family stories. And then I've resorted to of trying to fill out these stories with dates and uh, things in um, gravestones and uh, to make uh, accurate connections. So you're quite right. This this is uh, historical writing always with imagination. And some people think that uh, might be a, uh, a manufacturing of history uh, in a different way than it's necessary. We can't just record the history. And there aren't multiple sources that we can rely on. Uh, the, the contemporary ones are uh, it can be studied, and uh, Melissa Myers, for instance, and we can quarrel with some of her conclusions, as I do. But um, this is a, this is a different kind of writing. Right. But, you know, also one of the things that fascinates me or has always fascinated me about your work is that, you know, like Derrida talks about the archive, right? But yes. you know, like you don't care about his archive, right? It's like you don't have you don't have that um, concern about what's in and out. It's like you just extend the archive. You've always extended the archive yes. to include oral stories and yes. family stories yes. and and you know tribal teachings and spiritual realities and you know trickster everything that could be frowned upon by, you know, the academy or whoever are the official collectors and gatherers and judges. I mean, I feel like that's part of what I love about what you've done in, in you know, in your writing sort of broadly, I mean, in this book is, I mean, this story as well, and in The War at Sugar Point is, it's just like not allowed yourself to be contained by what is, what is supposedly yeah. authoritative, right? Yes. 
Oh, maybe the French have more archives to consider. <laughs> and, and they have a tradition of being uh, obligated to that so that they might be recognized as a scholar. I'm just astounded that I was able to do so much in a university and be promoted and rewarded by the way I've been writing. <laughs> and, uh, uh-huh. Although I, I've uh, certainly advanced whatever history is available and known and then have to fill in the rest with imagination. And that's been always uh, an experience. I mean, everybody I know growing up did that. They know a few things, and then they just make the rest work to make sense out of it. But we are very fortunate to have uh, great storyers in our families. And without that, I mean, without... John Clement Beaulieu and my grandmother and and your relatives too. We wouldn't have well, we wouldn't have permission to do what we do, and I, I think that's where it comes from. I, I never had any hesitation to write about stories that I heard and then could try to find a way to put them into print and then add to them and even add history to them. Um, I don't know a lot of people who grew up like that. I mean, outside of Native communities. Right, right. And and I think you've had a big influence on, on you know, opening that up to other Native writers. It, there's a particular passage in the story that you're, it reminds me of, and it's connected to what we're talking about. And it's um, when, let's see, who's speaking here? Oh, my goodness. I'm not sure who's speaking here. Be, oh, it's in the letter. Father Lawrence's letter. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. And um and he says this place must be a collection of every changing trickster story. And the longer I'm here, the more we seem to change each time a story is told. Is told yeah. <laughs> so I love that idea also of you know, like these these layers of story, but also place both um arising out of story and also being influenced by story, right? Yes, yes. Yeah. This was difficult for a lot of students to understand that a story had to be have some kind of authenticity, like a footnote somewhere, <laughs> or, or to be verified. And it showed a disappreciation of imagination uh, as a way to create a sense of presence. How else do we create a sense of presence? But, but by imagination. And the better we are at imagining, which means pulling in all the historical documents as well as stories and as well as our own uh, imagination about things, uh, we wouldn't have a history. Absolutely. And it reminds me of something else that you wrote about, Jerry. I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit, which is the um, the wild rice rights story. Oh, yes. Because, I mean, that's like... Oh, that's very good. Yeah. Yes, that's, I mean, the, that's what a is story. hearsay sovereignty is the piece that I'm thinking of, but the way that you've retold that story over the years. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was a, uh, there was a um, argument between the federal government and its authority to determine when the wild rice season annually should open. And then the native community, which knew when it <laughs> should be open. I mean, they live there, they know, have, have probably known for a thousand years. Uh, but this quarrel ended up in um, federal court, or the natives challenged this. And the judge, luckily for this hearing, was Miles Lord, a uh, federal judge. And I say luckily because he had strong uh, 
um, support and sympathy for Native issues. And uh, he didn't even have to hear this, but did. And the federal government argued, of course, they have the authority, and the Natives argued not. The first uh, challenge they made was to refuse to speak in English. <laughs> and uh, so the, the federal government had to find a translator, and the only one they could find was the same translator for the Natives. <laughs> so, so it had some lively humor in that respect of translation. But the witness said, uh, I was 12 years old. Uh, when old John Squirrel heard the government men say, we always have this right to know and to decide when to wild rice. And that was objected to as hearsay. The judge said, you have to say only what you know, not what somebody else knows and told you. So he retold the story from a different perspective. And when I was in court listening to this, that's when I truly understood the brilliance of some Native storiers, that it was like a hologram of memory. You could just draw on a different perspective, sometimes even a different point of view. And of course, in Algonquin languages, there is a fourth point of view, a fourth person. And so you can actually do this grammatically and although so few people know about that, it wouldn't be recognized. But in any case, he just told the story from a different perspective. I've done this quite often, especially in teaching. Uh -huh. And uh, the judge or the lawyers and judge still complained. He did it the third time. Much better story then because I had three <laughs> versions. And then uh, the judge was rather firm and demanded. Understand this all went through translators. So uh, the witness stood up and said, uh, yes, I understand what the hearsay is. And if you don't believe my stories about old John Squirrel, then I don't believe all the stories you have in those law books on your desk. <laughs> and Judge Lord uh, got it immediately. And he actually pitched back in his chair and smiled and said, you've got me there. <laughs> And what he meant, of course, is the, this was precedent established by cases, and uh, these were stories. The difference was, is those stories have authority, Native stories don't. Right. Yeah. I also love what you just said, which is that he told it from three different perspectives, right? And, and yes. it's kind of, you do that so much. Is like you will bring in multiple perspectives and you just kind of um, juxtapose them, right? And and they they comment on one another or they illuminate yes. one another. Yeah. And so I'd love you to talk a little bit about how you got from the supposedly objective journalism, <laughs> this like understanding of like everything is subjective, right? I suppose it first starts with uh, indirectly not knowing I'd end up being a journalist. I uh, wanted to write. Uh, so when I was maybe 16, 17, something like that, I, I tried to record a conversation in an ordinary cafe between a, two or three people. And I realized immediately that I couldn't do it because I couldn't keep up with it. <laughs> That's the recording part of it. But what I could keep up with was the scene in what they were talking about. And so I just listened differently, learned, learned to listen differently, 
and discovered that, of course, I'd always kind of listened that way. And listening that way created some problems academically because I'd perceive things differently. Uh, so then I uh, started trying to write that way, and I discovered that I could not summarize, but I could create the conversation uh, to kind of represent the scene that was going on. And it'd be quite close to what was going on. So by the time I got to be a journalist, sometimes I never took notes, especially with politicians, because you know what that scene is. And so I could, uh, within about 30 minutes, no longer than, say, uh, an hour uh, without interruptions, I could recreate the uh, interview or the discussion. And the only time I was ever challenged, or did anyone ever say I, I misquoted them, the only time I was ever challenged was with uh, Senator Mondale. And I was interviewing him on a political issue. And I already kind of read the press release, so I sort of knew what he was saying anyway. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I didn't take any notes. And he stopped in the middle and he said, are you rather firmly? And he said, are you taking notes or not? <laughs> and I said, oh, yes, of course I am. And then I, I didn't, though. I just sort of made some uh-huh. motions because I didn't have to. But that's a double example there. That Such statements are so structured, they were easier to quote. It's the ordinary conversations, and if you have enough skill listening, you also know how people choose phrases under certain circumstances mm-hmm. to emphasize certain things. So all of this became very obviously important to me as a uh, imaginative writer. Wow. Yeah, I love that. It's interesting because that's another thing we have in common is we both started in journalism. Yes, I know. And I think the same thing, too, is is after a while I decided... I can get more if I just pay attention. And then as soon as I left, I would write down the most important quotes are that kind of thing. Yeah, it it does make sense, right? Um, And that's how we get story anyway. We sort of get it in our skin. (laughs) Yeah. Well, uh, as you know from all of this, we were better listeners too because we grew up in families that told stories. And if stories include teasing... You have to pay attention. You have to listen. You have to listen for the tease at least, and uh, not miss the tease. Otherwise, it becomes forever a, a double tease. Right, and also, like when you talk about that, it's the way that people would mimic, right? So you yes. had to know when it was their voice and when it was someone else's voice, and right. when they were when they were saying something they meant, and when they were saying something exactly the opposite. That's right. <laughs> Yeah the, yeah, the the gesture, tone of voice indicated the irony. Yeah, exactly. And that, of course, we know that doesn't work in a classroom. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. There's a wonderful line in here. Somebody in here doesn't have a sense of irony. I, you say something about one of the characters. Oh, oh I think it's the Indian agent. Indian agent, yeah. Right. Ab- yeah. Absence of irony, yeah. Yes. <laughs> oh, I do want to tell you a story about a classroom, though. Um, so when I was at Notre Dame, and we could never do this now, but I was a TA, and I was trying to talk about pers- uh, point of view, right, in, in the classroom. Mm-hmm. And so what I did was I had a friend of mine who was a little bit gruff and, you know, kind of, he, he would burst into my room, and he kicked over a desk, and he yelled at me, right? And oh. then he ran out. And then my students were all, 
oh my gosh, right? So then I said, <laughs> what if a policeman came in here and asked you, what did you see? And then one of them would say, oh, there were a bunch of books in the room. And I'd say, no, there weren't any books. There's a window. You know, I just saw, you know, like, and so suddenly they got the idea that truth depends upon, you know, your angle of perspective or point of view right. or whatever. Yeah. So that was kind of a fun thing to do. But of course, that now is. it would be impossible. Oh, I know. It's become so um, politically strained. That, yeah. Yeah. I, I'd be on guard all the time, I think. Right. I used right. to ask students if I could tease them. <laughs> and, uh, that's wonderful. And, but that, that takes the tease away, of course. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, students would come in late and I'd make, uh, and if it was frequent, I'd make some comment, but I'd ask permission to tease. Uh-huh. And of course, what could they say? They'd come late <laughs> several times. So I, I had them trapped. And then I, very gentle tease, uh, uh-huh. you know, caught in a traffic jam with your skateboard, you know, things like that. <laughs> uh, but it was so light. Uh, I was actually ashamed that I had reduced to that kind of mundane level of teasing. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Well, you know, there's one other historical thing I just wanted to grab because did you see that recent um, article about how um, a birch bark scroll yes. was actually recovered? Yes, it was. It was on uh, for sale in Europe. Yes. Uh, and hadn't hadn't been sold. I think it had never been sold. So uh, no one knew about it. It was in someone's collection, as I understand the story. And I presume there was a death. And so this was a probate. Uh, and it would have been interesting, though, if I, when I read the story, if they had given it to a museum rather than being greedy, mm. it may not have come to the attention of people uh, to, enough to notify uh, Whiters or wherever or for someone to read about it that way. Right. Because, I, you know, I, like I said, I was just working with um, the war at Sugar Point. And, and in there, you retell the story about how some of the, the military yes. people actually, you know, steal yes. scrolls right. and medicine bags and all kinds of things, you know. That's about the, well, let's see, that was 1898, 99. That's pretty close. I mean, that could be, that's 100 years. Oh, no, I think that, I think that scroll was much older, but I think it was acquired much later. Could have been from that source, though. Yeah, I, was, I, I couldn't help but wonder about that because I had just been working with that text. Yeah. So let's see. Other things I wanted to talk about. Um, names. <laughs> 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 There's a, you know, so, so a couple of things that are just like so sort of your trademark are the interesting names and the play on names and the layers that are, you know, a part of names. I wonder if you could talk about that in this story. The only thing I regret about this story is I don't have any mongrels. I always have dogs in stories, and they always have great names. Uh-huh, yeah. And um, but here the um, the names are this, these sort of as one of the characters says tumble names. You know, you sort of tumble into them by your own behavior. And um, adding a shaman to this, which suggests it's a bit of fakery healing or uh-huh. tr- tricky healing um, allows for some of these names to, you know, have double or triple meanings. But the names themselves, Mildred Fairchild and uh, Father Lawrence is rather mundane, but the Catholic um, binary, uh, I thought, is probably the, the primary burden of the whole story. 
it isn't bad breath unless <laughs> unless it's this memory of her poetry teacher, but and her remorse over his death. But uh, otherwise, it's um, this insistent advice from her father. You know, don't don't fool around with Catholics. You know, they're dangerous. Right. But it turns it turns out a shaman's much more dangerous. <laughs> and uh, the names and masks and um, ideas he plants in people's imagination. Which isn't so unusual. I mean, a lot of people have this experience where they don't like certain members of the family or certain neighbors because they tell stories that haunt them. Mm-hmm. In other words, they, they somehow choose metaphors in their stories that have built-in tension or mystery or contradiction or fear, and it's never complete. It just floats in the story or in a comment. And then someone goes to bed and has a dream about it. Uh, so good storyers and then these wannabe shamans <laughs> know how to do that, know how to, to reach a, a mystery and on how to influence people into believing that they have power. And one way to do that is to kind of plant a haunting image or idea or scene and do it very casually and, and very loosely just a, a sleight of hand and leave it there and uh, and go on with something else and then that that affects someone i've that, that happens to all of us but in native communities people know the stories and what's going on and they know who has this strange kind of energy and and manipulative power and mm-hmm. then it appears that if you go to this person they can heal you so therefore, you can say they're a healer, because it all happened in language, images that float in dreams, and memory. And then you can just, if a, if a shamanic kind of person planted something like that, you can easily carry out a conversation with someone and uh, and neutralize it. Wow, that's very interesting. And, and of course, a lot of what you're doing in here, you say straight out about the power of words, and and you know you talk about how. Um, the, the fear of the progress, yep. the newspaper, was, you know, partly because the, words. the mixed blood, the mogwals, yeah. could, you know, handle language. They yeah. knew language. They could manipulate words, right? And, the, and the, sort of the power of language. There was something else I was thinking about. Um, oh, okay. This is another quote that, I, that really struck out to me. Um, so it talks about um, the Indian knew himself better in those days than he does today. And he had the pride of being on his own good land until the enactment of the Dawes Allotment Act of 1886, which led to the illusion of individual ownership of the land. The trees were cut. So then it sort of gives a history. But then um, it talks about, you know, the theft and how um, monuments are built in cities from these raw materials. And then the line that I really love is, now we measure who we are from what we have done to the Indians. You know, that sort of, it reminds me actually, Jerry, I don't know if you remember this, but a million years ago, you visited Milwaukee and we watched Indians, Outlaws and Angie DeBoe. And she's tracing that whole Oklahoma oil theft. Yes. Uh, and what I was thinking about is all those people that became prominent yes. figures on the wealth of Native people, yes. you know, 
And I feel like that's part of, I mean, you, you don't even take it there. You don't even go there and, and new, elaborate, but you, but this is just like such a packed statement about all those people who measure who they are from what they've done to Indians. Yes. I'm doing it a different way in what I'm working on right now, or not a different way, similarly. I'm referring... Tell me what you're working on. Uh, it's a novel in the late 1950s, 60s, and its core, or, or its, its strongest metaphor, are young people trying to outwit the temptations of suicide. Mm. It's a uh, heavy thing, but I do it in multiple ways, multiple approaches, of course. But one of the characters is um, obsessed, literally. He, he has inherited the burden of the massacre of totemic animals in three centuries. Mm. And so I, I, that is a massive burden. And it is this worlds and, and natives were in it too so it's not it's not native free but he isn't one of these demons of massacre but he bears the burden of it because no animal will come near him mm. except mongrels of course mm. so he's working on this and says things like everywhere i see the timber barons and actors and movie stars and people wearing beaver felt fedora hats, and they have no remorse for the murder that took place to create that hat. You know, so he's you know observing where the wealth went from this uh, fur trade, and how it's still there. Right. So I, I have worked on that always: timber, fur. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and it's it's and it really does have that the legacy that just reaches us still, you know, yeah. the kind of, I think I wrote once about this, how you create like a um, seven generations kind of thing with story about yes. how it goes into the future. It goes into the past and they they continue to be connected. And, and I was thinking about um, like current situations at white earth, like line three, right. Isn't that just, again, another kind of, it's not a timber baron, it's an oil baron, right? Yes. Right. And, and so it's the, the, the stories just get repeated, right? And right. the tool that you use to break those in your own fiction is trickster, you know? And that, and that you, you kind of turn the tables. And, and so that in creating this new perspective, right, um, to reconfigure the way we look at something, we can maybe say, ah, oh, ha, I see. You know, like, me, I mean, obviously... As Anishinaabe people, we see that, right? But, yes. but as a way to call out some of the, you know, destroyers, I feel like that humor that you use is one way to infiltrate that structure. And we both know that's a good method of teaching, too, especially Native literature. And you've always been so perceptive about these things, and I'm so grateful that you interpreted my work with such brilliance and uh, because it makes it so easy to talk about it with you. Um, yeah, the trickster is mysterious, of course, but uh, not at all. Uh, what's wrong with trickster is the English language created a um, negative figure out of this, someone who intentionally, out of greed or, or power, uh, manipulates for self-interest and tricks someone out of something. 
it completely distorts it. And when I first started writing, I was troubled by this because I'm using a word that I can't tease in any way. It's got, it, it, there's no subtlety in the dictionary definitions. <laughs> and so I just decided to just keep using it. It's what it is. And I'm not, I, I'm, I'm going to make the definition, uh, as I did say in survivance. Just make the definition, and one day I guess it might end up as an addition to the meaning of trickster in English dictionaries. It's uh, difficult to talk to people about it because it it it, um, it it stimulates a kind of unease or defensiveness that they don't quite know what's happening, and and if you tease a little bit then that even contributes more to their unease <laughs> that they might be the subject of some uh, humiliation or uh, part of this, of course, uh, grows out of the way uh, people have been raised in families. And I've noticed in, among my students, and not many of them, but those students who grew up in families that did a lot of teasing can handle an enormous amount of language play with pleasure. That is the surprises and contradictions of language. They they can figure out easily and take some pleasure in it. That things don't always mean what they mean, and author, authority is is only a pose. And uh, what people say isn't what it means ever, ever. That's really difficult for people to uh, to grasp. And uh, Derrida should help them, but then who bothers to read Derrida? So. Yeah. I mean, just the simple idea of difference that the word the words I use right at this moment are not their final meaning. <laughs> the, the next expression is a different use of that word and a different meaning. So language itself is the trickster. Mm. It's always on the edge of irony because it doesn't actually mean what we're saying. We're trying to say something that's only possible because we know each other or trust each other, or we speak more formally if that's not the case. Uh -huh. In other words, we choose a form of communication. And the one I like the most is a playful language where the meaning grows as you tell the stories and, mm -hmm. and scenes develop rather than definitions. Uh, relationships are revealed rather than documents, things like that. So the trickster, I always think a warrior on a coin that never lands twice on the same side. Yeah, that's I mean, right. that's, your, that's yes. one of your classic um, descriptions. Yeah. yeah. But also what you're saying just now is also that idea of transmotion, right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, yes. I mean, language is always in motion and you can't get back to anything. There's the trickster part of the story. Is that destroying a telling can't be undone or get back to anything, uh, nor can anyone's story, nor can anyone's genealogy. I mean, people think that their genealogy will reveal something. Well, it doesn't reveal anything except some connections that are archival. And so, what's the meaning to that? Uh, then they'll add, well, certain professions, certain activities, certain honors or not. Well, what that's not a story either. Ultimately, they have to tell the story, and the only thing that would be memorable is the story, not the genealogy. 
<laughs> I was going to say that's the whole affiliation affiliation. Yes. Affiliation affiliation that you you know were playing with for a while there. Yes. Uh, well, uh, yes, and the fact that um, it's rewarding to know that you're related to certain people, but there's nothing in that after a, <laughs> after you know a happy moment. There's nothing there. You have to make a story out of it, and then the story grows. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm amazed at how memory works. For instance, um, telling a story about some scene I remember. The very nature of telling it increases my perception of it. Mm-hmm. And so the next time I tell it, it, it changes. And nothing new about this. Uh, uh, Storyers are always done this. And if anyone told the same story day after day, who would listen to them? <laughs> but then we have political parties who do the same thing and we don't listen. <laughs> no, but I love because... Um, you, I can see that happen if we look like we trace it across your work, like the squirrel story or or the, um, oh, my gosh, um, the last of the Yahi, Ishii. Yes, right? yes. Um, so, so stories that you've told more than once or written about more than once. Yes. Or oh, that you've written about and that I've heard you tell in addition to that, they just, yes. they just grow. They just become, it you know. does grow. Yeah. The, these the the scene and value of the insight in the story keeps growing. For instance, uh, uh, George Abbott, the, the witness in federal court, mm-hmm. he that was a very straightforward thing that I first reported as a journalist. Well, and of course, that's the way you have to present it. But I've done what he did. I've just created other voices about that scene in the courtroom he would have done the same thing. He would have said, old John, somebody told me about Miles Lord. You know, I mean, uh-huh. it, it would have been, and I'm doing the same thing. Uh, the benefit I may have right here is though that I published what people consider to be something slightly authentic because it's journalistic and it was in a courtroom. Right. There are documents to support actually what happened. It has some authority built into its scenes and there are people who can corroborate it uh that's even better because then i can create uh each telling and add more information to it about the fourth person which i didn't write about then and what george Ovid was doing was telling a story in the fourth person in other words it's not just <laughs> i and you or uh, us it's it's another sense of a story that floats in memory <laughs> and a way to tell it floats in memory too. I love that floats in memory. We could talk about dreams and vision and transformation. Oh, no, I know all these things. Yeah. Luckily <laughs> we have a good language for that. Don't we? I mean, English has taken over so many languages and uh, mm-hmm. words from different languages. Um, I was always impressed by people saying that it was much easier say in French to translate or articulate things because the number of words are uh, smaller than in English. Uh, quite true, actually, because English is, the last I read was something like, it's based, it borrows words from over 3,000 languages, primarily wow. Germanic and Romance, of course. But what an interesting language we have that has so many modifiers and conditions that come from Romance languages 
and so many verbs from Germanic languages and names. And the structure is so peculiar and unusual, like all languages are. Its grammar is a little more simplified than some. But what's great about it is that because it has borrowed so much, it isn't as rigid as other languages. And we can make better use of it and, uh, and change points of view. And we don't really have to deal with gender at all. You can eliminate, almost eliminate pronouns in a story, which is what natives did. There, there rarely was there a pronoun reference. You didn't need one. The context of the story makes clear wh what the scene is, and you don't have to emphasize a pronoun or, or be obligated to uh, gender pronouns. I was also thinking about the way that, you know, through your work, you've used Anishinaabe Moen, right, through the yes. years, and, and also, like, sometimes I feel like those are the only words that could describe what you're trying to do, you know? In some way, there is one. I was searching for this transmotion that um, right. it's it's something in motion, always in motion, but you can't you can't define it. And uh, language is always in motion. If we create images; they they must be in motion, or, or they right. they don't have any um, power really. And so I was searching for a. Anishinaabe word, and um, there isn't any, but now I can't remember the word right now, but it was that you could see something in a great distance. And so I, I used that just as an example, that Anishinaabe at least had a sense that you could, that there are things you can talk about that are at a great distance, but you can't see them. Okay, yeah. It's not, it's not futuristic, it's just a distance, a difference, and it's the closest I could come to an idea of transmotion. So, but yeah, but it's a possibility. It's, it's a way of perceiving, a possibility of perception yes. that we acknowledge, right? Um, but yeah, we can't I, I see it. About yeah. you, the um, aguatesi shadows. That shadows is really yes. important. Um, yeah, that was another one, very important, especially when I was working on dream songs, and, and then also then in haiku, because. The native idea that the shadow had a presence. And when I first read that, what a brilliant idea. <laughs> of course, we're not stupid. We know that things create shadows. But what a brilliant, poetic, pleasurable way to see and write about and tell stories about shadows, to give them a presence without being burdened by the source. What a, what a wonderful idea. Right. I love that. Yeah. And then children, um, children understand that it's just yes. that adults don't. Yeah. Right. Right. That's so true. Yeah. And the other thing is when you were just talking, I was thinking about um, you said, you know, everything's in motion. Again, it's grounded in Anishinaabe Moen because it's mostly a verb language. Right. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Which is so it's not now, 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 now. No. It's verb, 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 verb. <laughs> Things yeah. are moving. It's in motion. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think Diné or Navajo languages also. I mean, the number of possible conjugations of verbs is in the hundreds of thousands. Wow. So it's it, it also, and it, it, this may be true of all native languages, that the meaning is in the um, scene of motion, uh, not in its definition. 
uh, Western languages are different with that. I mean, it's in definition rather than in motion or right. ac- action that's defined in some way. And, it, you know, that goes back to kind of circles back to what we started with is the idea of a confined archive as opposed to story that is always growing. Right. Story that yes. is. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it, in many ways, I feel like um what you started, what you started so many years ago, <laughs> a narrative history, I think you were calling narrative history at one point. Um, yes. People are finally getting it, you know, and people are adopting that understanding, that way of that relationship to story. And so, I mean, that's why your words are ending up in dictionaries. <laughs> you know, <laughs> survivance is everywhere. It's a computer game. It's a, you know. It's quite amazing, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'm no longer connected to half the references now. <laughs> Wikipedia still gives me credit. It defines it and still gives me credit. But. That's excellent. <laughs> and it's given rise to so many um, wonderful projects, I think, for people, just like ways of, of reevaluating their own relationship with the world. Of course, I was doing this imaginatively, but I wanted a critical voice, too, about this. And among the most informative sources in my reading were Derrida, mostly the French, but Derrida, who, I mean, the idea that uh, meaning is deferred always, Mm -hmm. and that motion is um, part of the understanding, in other words. And uh, um, let's see, other values he has about... um, archival, which you've already brought up, and um, he values that greatly, but he quarrels there, too, with its interpretations. and Not quarrels. He, he illuminates the, the necessary linguistic interests in its meaning and, and working it into a story. It isn't a meaning that's dead, in other words. It's not a dead language. <laughs> now I'm referring to another <laughs> book, Dead Voices. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But searching for critical ways to talk about this so that I could teach it. Um, because if I just went around saying what I did, that, that it isn't a, a critical or a theoretical approach. That's been pretty exciting, too. And always exciting when I found authors that had anticipated this, philosophers and authors. Are there um, contemporary Indigenous writers or just contemporary writers that you know, that you find like they're doing something really interesting or new or that captivate you in some way? I always find that difficult because, uh, <laughs> I, I mean, to talk about, especially going on record like this. Oh, sure. I, I always find it uh, complicated <laughs> because is if we have a conversation as we're sitting, you can give someone a great insight and then take a little bit away from it, you know, and, mm-hmm. but it's difficult to do that if it's recorded because then it's kind of fixed and then it'd be quoted somewhere out of its context of, of a motion of language and interpretation in a work. Um, what about the new Visner movie? Do you want to oh, say? <laughs> yeah, I was, I was really, John Purdy, who, Produced and directed this, well, with, with some about foundation uh, support, obviously. But, but what a great job he did, and especially your work. My goodness, it was so much fun to hang out with him too, and just to yeah. rethink. I mean, that that was such an early book, and um, you know, to see that 
what it what is how prophetic it was that's what just keeps coming back to me you know that in terms of you know energy climate and so on um already looking and and seeing what could happen with um the barter and the you know power structures and all of that i just thought it was fascinating to look at it again well bearhart uh was uh the Minneapolis Tribune had a relationship with Harper and Rowe, uh, some stock uh, business relationship. So the editors were well known. And so I had an editor to send Bearhart to, and I did so, heard nothing from him. So I wrote and he apologized. He had lost it. So I sent another copy and he lost that too. So I, I got the message. <laughs> and so I, uh, I uh, published it through a small press first, and then the University of Minnesota uh, reprinted it, completely reprinted it, uh, because you couldn't do photo then. You know, it had to be reset. So uh-huh. as long as it sure. could be re- reset, I wanted to add some things. For instance, the opening. I realized it was important that people not think of me as the author. I'm the narrator, but not the author. And so I created an author of this book, yeah. uh, you know, uh, in, in the beginning, in the front. But it was the University of Minnesota had a uh, printer in Iowa, a contract printer that did their books. And the printer called, I was told by the editor that the printer, his staff refused to print some of this language. And um, so. The editor said, well, you have a choice. You either print it or you've broken the contract. He said, we won't print it. So they broke the contract. <laughs> and the press went, I think, went to Michigan because there were much better presses there. They were really developing new high-speed printing and typesetting, you know, advanced technology. And it was really growing in, in Michigan. And a lot of university presses were doing it. So a lot of presses were doing it, period. So they took it and published it. Wow. An interesting history. It's still in print, of course. And I don't know, maybe 100 copies a year sell, something like that. That's wonderful. <laughs> it was published in 76. And uh, it took about a year and a half to write. And some of the scenes, uh, I wrote it in various places. Um, Maybe half of it I wrote in an office. I rented an office in St. Paul, and uh, I'd, I'd go to work every day. Uh-huh. I decided I had to do this because if I sat at wherever I was living, and it, then it's always with me, and I, I can't get uh-huh. out of the I can't get out of the scenes. Mm-hmm. And I'm saying that out of uh, anxiety because the scenes didn't go away, you know. So I'd walk to work, and then I'd have a coffee break, and then I'd finish work and go home. And then, but I have to say that the impact of the film about uh, of the movie rather about maybe two thirds of the way through to the novel, uh, I was living in St. Paul, and I developed an incredible fear of the dark and of dark places. And I sometimes worked late and walk home, and it. So I was really, I was very uneasy. Wow. And I couldn't, 
rationalize my way out of it. I couldn't say that this is ridiculous. And if there's something going on in the way I'm writing about this that I've internalized to fear, mm-hmm. well, of course there is. Mm-hmm. I mean, reading it can do that. But here's how I took care of it. I, I um, chose the most, the darkest and potentially the most hazarded alley in St. Paul. <laughs> One that nobody in their right mind would walk mm-hmm. through. And, and I just walked through it down two blocks and back and I got rid of it. Wow. So I just dealt with an imagined fear by conquering a real fear. Wow. I don't know. I don't know how that fits into psychiatry, but <laughs> um, it, it, it worked. It worked for me. Wow. But the scenes were, you know, to write them were, even though there's irony in every scene, as horrific as some of the scenes are, I mean, the plastic places is just horrific. People's faces disfigured mm-hmm. by cancers of the environment. And so they wear plastic and can't pronounce the plosive sounds, plastic places. It's just horrifying image, but it's, it's ironic, too. And, and uh, so much humor in it, along with all of the torment and memory and uh, disintegration of what's thought to be a social bond of a constitutional democracy ends with petroleum. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's interesting too, that metaphor of cancer is there and it's in this story. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't it in everybody's life always? Yeah, I guess it is, right? It's always. And you, it's always a surprise. Uh, no one understood it. The symptoms were not there at first. And, and then suddenly it's something's there. And, and then that's, uh, as my as a good friend says, toes up. <laughs> Let me see. What else do we need to talk about, Jerry? Do you have something that you'd like to talk about about in that story? Or well, I think some of the symbols in the story I thought were pretty good. I remember now it's written 40, 40 years ago, so I'm not too. I, I have to retell the story about a story because I'm I'm not in it as I was, but I recall being in. Uh, Mildred Fairchild arriving, arriving at Olgama and standing in the bank, in front of, waiting in front of the bank, because what safer place could there be than standing in front of a bank? <laughs> and the bank that has three layers of reality. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So there's, the, there's the symbolic irony of the whole thing. <laughs> and of course, every bank has shady land dealings. Every bank has uh, its favorite drinkers. And its favorite customers. So, I mean, I, I thought that was a nice, uh, nice play of language. And the scenes in the hotel, the, uh, um, I stayed right in a house right near there one summer for a couple of nights as a guest. And that's where those scenes came from. Huge, powerful thunderstorm. Um. I mean, just shattering, trembling, and no lights. And... You could imagine easily the faces in the night uh-huh. and, and the masks of totems. Wow. And so that's where that came from. I, I gave that to her. 
I really related to lots of the physical description, the birds and the scents and all of that, you know, because it's that place is just, well, it's so special and it's and it and it's sort of embedded right in my brain. But I was thinking too about even even in writing about that place you had um the Hind End Hotel. (laughs) Yes. Quarters, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yes. So that um that curve that you describe in the road. Is that so? You and when you're going into White Earth and you you're coming from Ugama, and if you're coming from 59 and you come to that corner, right? So it's the curve that goes to the right. If you go to the right, it's the cemetery, and uh, is that right? Yeah, I think that's the cemetery and the mission down there. Oh. I had to bring I had to bring them closer together in the story, though. Okay. Uh, also, because um, I collapsed. Uh, a little bit. Uh, Ogoma was one place, and they they did have a bank. But the other place was the 1920s. You know, when uh, White Earth had um, that was farther down the road. When White Earth had um, a bank, post office, markets, a movie theater, three hotels. Did it really for real? Yeah, that's uh-huh. yes, and that's before I write about that in the uh, historical novels. Um, Blue Ravens and um, okay. and then the last one, uh, Sati and the Sen, uh, because there, that's where they came from, and that's where the newspaper office was right nearby there. And the point is that that was a for a small area and reservation that that was a thriving community. Yeah, there was exchanging going on, and people came there to stay. Um, I'm sure many of them were government agents. Obviously, because that's what they did then. Mm-hmm. They arrived at Okama by train, and then they were taken by horse wagon to one of the hotels. And, and teachers would arrive that way. And But then automobile pretty much eliminated um, the stop at Okama. Nobody needed to go there that way anymore. Okay. And uh, so the hotels just were eliminated. The one lasted the longest. The Lisi Hotel lasted the longest. and. That's featured in um, Blue Ravens and a couple of other stories. Wow! So when I was growing up in Minoman, there was a hotel, and there because there was there wasn't passenger service by the train. That was still only at Detroit Lakes at that time. But there was a bus, and the bus would run daily, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, for years it did, and we 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 would take the bus to Detroit Lakes and do our big city shopping. But um, by the time I was a journalist in um, the small town of Thief River Falls, that, you know, there was this issue of remote cities in Minnesota having people just not having access to transportation and they were doing the airline deregulation. So I remember covering an airline deregulation story in the Twin Uh Cities and this um, the mayor of International Falls. The mayor of International Falls, he was, you know, giving testimony of why they couldn't take away their their air service, their their small plane service. Mm-hmm. He said, you know, International Falls is so remote that when we had a bus, it had to back into town. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's a great story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, there's a good humor. <laughs> Kim, what are you working on in terms of community projects now? Um, at the beginning of the pandemic, I started 
Inepo Indigenous Nations Poets. It's oh, a yes. nonprofit organization, and um, it's had a remarkable growth in this year. Despite you know the pandemic, we've we have just incredible board, including Joy Harjo, who's our U.S. Poet Laureate. Um, we've done a number of kind of high profile programs and but but we're still you know getting our feet on the ground but it's it's really exciting um we're associated with the academy of american poets and the poetry coalition so that gives us a lot of connections um we did do a really lovely uh series of videos with tippet rise art center and the adrian brinkerhoff poetry foundation so they did we did poetry videos uh, with people who are in When the Light of the World Was Subdued, Our Songs Came Through, the Norton Anthology of Native Nations Poetry. Yes. So that's a beautiful, you know, project that we were able to do. But we're sort of on the brink and we will, we are working, we have a new website that's being developed and we're going to have our first, um, it's a mentoring organization for young writers. So we're going to have our first mentoring retreat in Washington, D.C. when Joy finishes her term, her last term as, as U.S. Poet Laureate, and she's going to be a part of that five-day event. So it's really exciting. It's a moment, you know, finally to get Native poets recognized and, you know, have some control about our work and commentary on it and so on. So I'm really excited about that. Very nice. Yeah. Yeah. And my own, um, I have a new book of poems that is already out. It's out. I've sent it out a oh. couple of times. So I'm waiting for someone to pick it up. <laughs> yeah. And my most recent one actually, I is what came out in France. Did you know that? No, I didn't. Yeah. So last fall, late last fall, it was, it's Resiste en dansant, Equinimi, Dancing Resistance. So it's a oh, very nice. lovely little, um, Press in France that did a, a kind of an art book out of it. So when things oh, open up, I, I guess you go and travel there and you know do a few readings. So that'll be fun. Well, let's do something there together. Oh, that would be so great. I yes. would love to. Yeah, okay. absolutely. Yeah. Okay, so you're working on a novel and that the is yes. set in the 60s. It's about, I got I got halfway through it. Uh, it's not a pandemic novel because it was where I was working on it before then, but I wanted to return to the fifties and early sixties and the reservation and work with younger people and suicide and puppetry. And I'm coming back to my great character, dummy trout. Okay. And uh, she's a puppeteer. I mean, that's established in the um, blue Ravens and, and all the ages. I don't know how I anticipated this, but they're all, maturing at just the right time <laughs> and she's a fan of opera and opera singers and puppetry and she's one of these language tricksters and uh as you know from the other stories but um so the what i never uh, developed with her was that young some young people would be drawn to her i mean i always knew that but i i there was no way to fit that in it wasn't part of the story at the time uh-huh. It was just her puppetry and opera uh, stars that featured. But this one, she's featured and she and they come to her, not out of desperation, but liberty. She's a person who represents liberty. You can be a person and create your own scene of understanding. And that's new for them. Mm. They've never had relationships like that. They've never heard that in school. 
They've never heard that from their relatives. They've certainly never heard it from traditions. And they can't deal with the world because of what's happened to the reservation. Mm. It's not an identity story. It's the terrible burden of what this history is once you start looking at it. And who would want to live like that? But I bring back a small scene in a very early story of the library burning at White Earth. It did uh, burn. It did? Really? Okay. Yeah, there was a small library that did burn. But when I learned that, I, I then made something of it, you know, in my imagination. Um, and I made it a place where people connected to things, and especially the librarian. And when the library burned, I had these characters. Uh, there were only about five Native young people who sifted through the rubble of the library, searching for their kind of books. And they would find them half burned. In other words, the outer sides would be burned. And they each developed a way to complete the story, mm. imagining the burned parts. So one of my characters is in love with Aristotle, and he finds poetics burned badly. And remarkably, he creates this interesting idea of native dream songs out of some of the language of Aristotle in poetics. Wow. And they, they all have different interests. And so that's how they, and they, they can read. In other words, you can cut away half the page and they can read into imagination. <laughs> I love that. I love which that. Which is what reading is. Right, right. So my kids tell that when, when they were smaller and I would be reading to them and I'd fall asleep. My eyes would be closed, but I continue the story. <laughs> so, you know, it would, go, it would go places that weren't in the book. <laughs> yeah. So it's interesting because I love the way that your characters are alive, right? And then they come back in these later stories. Yes. That's very cool. I love that, yeah. you know. So, I mean, I'd be interested about like, are you inhabited by them? Do you know what I mean? Are they there and they just sort of play in the back of your mind or? Oh yeah. I think they're always there. I mean, I, I can, well, I don't call them up, but they, they appear. I mean, (laughs) I think it's a, some concentration of thought and imagination and humor or trigger or something. And there they appear. And then they say these interesting things Uh after that, as you know, then it's rewriting to get it to flow right and and Mm -hmm. also to have it anticipate things. Because the first writing is really pleasurable because it's these kind of scenes unfolding. Uh But then making it work on the page is something else. And uh, and I'm very, what um, I'm still just fascinated with this problem of how to get a listener kind of story onto a page equivalent to say, imagine it. And I think by not completing certain things forces the reader to imagine it, leaving some things descriptively interesting, but incomplete obligates the reader to imagine it. And I, that's, that's, I think part of the uh, story or listener 
relationship. And it's, it's like the burnt books. <laughs> yeah, yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah, that's great. I love that. So, you know, here's an interesting thing that um, you write about the library um, that burned. And Gordy, Gordon Henry, writes about the character that has to spend a night in the library and burns yes. remember <laughs> yes that's right <laughs> yeah yeah and then um that's obviously I mean, you have like maybe eight collections of haiku i don't really know but then he has the the novel he has the haiku haiku novel. of haiku <laughs> yeah right. yeah and the yeah, funny he was, thing he, he yeah. was teasing me in that novel yes yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Margaret Newton and I were talking about how yeah. sometimes we should bring together all these white earth writers because we have, you know, we have, a, we have poems that are, you know, like about the same subject, but they're not, you know, we have, you know, like yeah. it, it would just be really interesting to put those in a, in a collection. That would be. White earth is particularly unique. Yeah, I, think, I know. I don't think any, anywhere has so many writers. Not part of it, of course, is just the, the chance of settlement there that it was French kind of French fur trade, Anishinaabe French intermarried and they were educated and liked books and did reading and told stories and published newspapers. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it had a, uh, a different kind of culture than some other communities. So were your relatives truly the first occupants of the reservation, first settlers? <laughs> The Bolios were, were, yeah. Okay. Uh, I, yes, Morrison's, Bolios, um, uh, so, several other names, yeah, surnames, yeah. Yeah, because, yeah. I mean, there's a few people that I haven't traced out in here. Like, um, I know there's a nickname for the agent, but the agent's actual name, is that? Sheehan. Sheehan. T.J. Sheehan. Okay, yeah. and, and that's a, is that a historical figure? Yes, he okay, is. See, I and have to do he, my homework. He, I need to find out about him. He, <laughs> he actually deputized natives, and they went to the press and seized it and ordered the bolios off the reservation. But they didn't go. They went to the Catholic Church as refugees. <laughs> and uh, Sheehan and the government were not fond of Catholics, of course. But uh, they he, he couldn't interfere with that. Then it went to federal court, and a year later, judge ruled. Anybody can publish a newspaper anywhere they want to. He didn't even say reservation. Uh-huh. You just do it anywhere you want to. Excellent. Yeah. So issue number one of the progress, what was it, March something? And then about a year later is the second issue wow. of the progress. <laughs> and so did they really attack the Indian agent in an article or, or uh, something in the paper? Yes, they did. Exactly that. <laughs> wow. Excellent. Excellent. I love also um, in a in a later book where you talk about when you first discovered them, you know, first discovered the progress and and you yeah. know what that meant to you. I wonder if you could talk about that just a little bit. Yes, it was. I was a graduate student. And uh, of course, my relatives spoke about everything, I thought. And but two things they never mentioned the newspaper, and the fact that two uncles had been in prison. Mm. Minor crimes, one for stealing a equivalent of a six-pack and the other one for having sex with his girlfriend who was a year older than he was, but still she was too young. Right. My uncle, same thing. And, 
Yeah, they were in prison for one year, uh, were trustees on the farm. And I have written about that a bit. And the reason I know about this was that I went to work there as a social worker or a corrections agent at the reformatory, the prison, and called up the Visnor records and found letters from my grandmother and letters from my father to his their brothers. And then uh, a fuller discussion of what they were there for. But that was never discussed. That I could accept. You know, who wants to talk about that? But there were such good stories out of those. My grandmother's story about the dog that she accidentally <laughs> left there, because they were on the farm and the boys loved this dog and the dog wouldn't leave. And um, so she kept writing to the warden saying, oh, I just chased him and chased him and I just couldn't catch him. He just <laughs> didn't want to go home. You know, I mean, she kept writing every time she visited uh-huh. me. Be more demanding each time that you must get your dog out of here. <laughs> Finally, he capitulated and said, "Well, um, the, the inmates so love uh, the dog that we've decided to make an exception." And then, about five years later, the last letter is from the warden to my grandmother. I regret to inform you that Timmy, your favorite dog, died yesterday, and we buried him on the hill overlooking the farm. I mean, it was such a what why she would not want to tell that story, but she didn't want to embarrass her boys. Oh. And, you know. and the other thing I know what he talked about was the newspaper. And I discovered that as a graduate student when I was working on uh, a relative of mine uh, in the cousin, distant cousin range, uh, Joseph Fisner, who was tribal chair uh, at White Earth in the early 50s. And uh, a wonderful librarian at uh, Historical Society, reference librarian, asked me if I had consulted the progress on the tomahawk. And I knew I I was trying not to look dumb, but I couldn't do it. Uh I had to say, I had to say, I didn't know anything about it. Uh But she took uh, sympathy and respect, understood that people like me probably wouldn't know about anything like that. And then she hauled out the actual copies. And I was so, I mean, I was there several days reading the whole thing. And then I ordered a microfiche of it for fear that it was about to fall apart. Uh-huh. Uh, but since then, of course, you know, the whole newspaper now is the Library of Congress. You can read, read it online. It's just great. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Wow. That's so amazing. And that was a moment when you felt inspired, like, for your own future? I did. I felt connected in a way I hadn't before. I mean, I had all kinds of other connections through relatives, but this this was um, a the thing that I wanted to do. You know, I uh, mean, this is the kind of life I wanted to live, and uh, that and teaching. And so it just was a perfect connection. Wow. I, ne- I never had to explain why I want to do this. <laughs> and I didn't have to cite the New York Times or the <laughs> Minneapolis Tribune. Yeah. I could say my relatives right. published a paper. Right. Yeah. Well, you know that um, I was a graduate student at Notre Dame and I was a fellow at the Newberry Library and the then editor of the American Indian Quarterly, Bob Black, um, yes. came to my carol and he said, do you know 
Visner. I'm like, no, I don't know Visner. <laughs> and he gave me The Everlasting Sky, which was that early book that you had done. And, yes. and in the book, so, you know, my um, family name is Antel. And in there yes. was Will Antel, you know, which of course, yes. there's another story behind that. But, but just as like, it was someone, literally someone I was related to. And there were yes. people for the first time ever, like, I recognized in a story, you know? So for me, that yes. was like huge too. And that was written by a name. That was written yes. by, yeah. And someone from Whiter, yeah. for heaven's sakes. Um, and yeah. the Newbury Library had kind of, um, what would I say? They had been soliciting me under the impression that I was going to write a book on Darcy McNichol. Oh, yes. And then, lo and behold, <laughs> I didn't. I wrote about Gerald Visner. <laughs> yeah, that was just a really amazing moment. Oh, and I'm forever grateful. That's one of the best books about my work. <laughs> of course it is, because you understand the sensitivity and the insight into storying, which is so much a part of who we are. Thanks to Gerald Visner and Kimberly Blazer for joining us this week. Fiction Transmission is made by FC2 with generous support from the Jarvis and Constance Doctorow Family Foundation. This episode was produced by Brian Kahn and engineered by Joelle Thibodeau. The story was read by me, Mia Ellis, and recorded by Max Kessler at Mosaic Audio. You can find FC2 online at fc2.org, on Twitter at FCTWO, and on Instagram at Fiction Collective 2. Please join us next week for another story and a new conversation.